It's happening. Californians are among more than a dozen states voting in Super Tuesday. This election will decide about one-third of all delegates for the Democratic hopefuls, possibly creating a solid lead for either Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. However, because of California's open approach to voting, a clear answer on all races is very unlikely to emerge when the first batch of returns for California is announced after 8 p.m. on Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, March 3rd. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Michael Smolens, you're the political columnist for the Union-Tribune, and it's finally happening. It seems that having California in Super Tuesday really changes the game. Let's step back a little bit. Why was this change made? Well, California, traditionally, the, the primary had always been in June, and that was sort of pretty much at the tail end, not the very last, but pretty close to it. And nominations had been decided. And so there was always this clamoring and has been for decades, really, to, to move California up. We're the biggest state, uh, the biggest population, and we contribute the most money to the candidates. And the party leaders and others were thinking we're just not influential enough as we should be. So that prompted the move. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's one of those rare things that Republicans and Democrats would agree on. California actually had moved up its primary twice before to, to March. It, it didn't quite work out the way it is in this go-round. Frankly, the Democratic nominee was uh, pretty much decided or determined which way it was going. First was in 2000, and that was, of course, Vice President Al Gore, who came into California with a pretty strong lead and momentum. And uh, the next one was two years later, or four years later, excuse me, with John Kerry. And uh, again, he came in with momentum. So it didn't exactly backfire, but it didn't quite work out. Here, California is right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about this earlier today, but how exactly does the delegate allocation work? Because it's something that it's kind of nitty gritty. And how does that get sussed out in the end? It is. It's important, though, because we like to talk about who wins a state. California and other states, it's complex. Uh, think of 15%. That's sort of the golden number. Mm -hmm. There's two thresholds. There's a 15% threshold statewide. So if you don't get 15% statewide, you don't get any of the statewide delegates. Then there are delegates apportioned to each of the 53 congressional districts, and you've got to get 15% in each of those districts to get some of those delegates. So what it does is it, a, it potentially spreads things around, but it also rewards a candidate in a campaign that spends the time that goes to, you know broadly and deep uh, and Bernie Sanders has done that quite a bit. We'll have to see uh, how Biden fares in California in that regard. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a hallmark of the Democratic kind of primary process in which there are no winner-take-all states? It's all this kind of apportionment, right? That's correct. And uh, the Republicans have various modes. They're more winner-take-all. Uh, some have argued that if California really wanted to have an impact it, in the Democratic primary, it should be more winner-take-all because we will – who knows what we will see at the end of the day, but it's – Nobody's going to get the, the majority of delegates after Super Tuesday. We may see uh, that somebody is well on their way, and if it's anybody, it would be Sanders. But uh, we'll just have to see if Biden's late uh, spurt uh, slows that down. Mm -hmm. And looking back at the past several months, let's recap the ways that the Democratic candidates have been spending time in California. Let's start with Biden. What has he or what hasn't he been doing? He he has been in the state uh, – quite a bit. Uh, they all have in, in different ways. Usually they come just to raise money and then leave because California is not that uh, consequential. Uh, they've been doing more public events. That's sort of the key thing. Uh, he's had stuff 
around. He's been in San Diego. Uh, the big public event, as we recall, though, was really Elizabeth Warren outside the county building one evening, which was a very large gathering. So there's that change. But what he may not be doing as much or hasn't done as much is I mentioned made a reference to the Bernie Sanders campaign. He hasn't really courted the, uh, the, the state Democrats, uh, which is a very more liberal-leaning group, uh, more Bernie and Elizabeth Warren focused. He didn't go to the state party convention where, when some other candidates did last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also been some question as to how much of a ground game he's really developed, whereas Sanders has 20 uh, uh, you know, c- campaign offices throughout the state, and he's making a play in most, if not all, of the congressional districts. Biden doesn't seem to be doing that as much. Yeah, and you kind of hinted at it, but it does seem that Sanders really does have a true network of support in California that kind of never went away after 2016, right? Well, that's correct. Uh, and and so he really did have a, a leg up. It was clear once Trump won in 2016 that, that Sanders was likely to, to move ahead uh, this year. And we've seen that. So uh, there was a question that, that is is that base still as strong as it was? And it is, but, you know, you look at the numbers, it's not the same. Of course, pretty much in 2016, it was kind of a one-on-one race between him and Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Here we've had a much broader and diverse crowd. So while he's come out of the early primaries relatively strong, uh, he doesn't have the numbers that he had uh, before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's certainly interesting how this Democratic field has changed so much in this past year. It went from more than 20 candidates with a record amount of diversity to, you know, a very small field of, you know, older white men. Pretty much, except for Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. But uh, but everybody's, uh, I think she's the youngest at 70. So uh, uh, as somebody, uh, there was an editorial cartoon in some newspaper that uh, people watching TV with the Democratic candidates, and it was called That 70s Show. So it, it is intriguing uh, that Bernie Sanders is really attracted a lot of the the the, the young voters uh warren has made some inroads there uh, it's just sort of interesting that the younger candidates couldn't quite do that the peter Buttigieg's and the amy klobuchar's and so forth mm-hmm. and one thing that makes california unique is just that it just has a you know a larger population and also a larger amount of more liberal individuals and more extreme liberal individuals in the rest of the country how is that tension kind of played out on the perspective of the DNC, because it's certainly awkward when you're trying to win a national election with the national message, but you have California and other big states kind of tugging to the left further, which you're seeing that tension between kind of the more moderate ranks and Sanders. It's acute in California, I think, but it's really a nationwide situation with the Democratic Party. They're going through this. The Republicans had gone through it in a you know the reverse sense with the sort of the moderates and conservatives. Now it's just the Trump Party. Uh, that's all changed. That's really been the dynamic, and that's going to be an issue going into the Milwaukee uh, National Convention for the Democrats in July. Uh, it's not going to be a love fest. Uh, and if it's Bernie Sanders, it's interesting because uh, House Speaker Pelosi says, whoever the nominee is, we're going to get behind them full force and so forth. But she also added that the House Democrats will have their own agenda, that they her, her responsibility is district by district to make sure that they win, particularly those that are in swing districts that won what had been Republican districts before. And if the Sanders agenda and platform isn't uh, advantageous to them, they'll be talking about other stuff. That's still difficult because, you know, the party nominee, you're, you're sort of running with them on the ticket. And if they're a liability, that can be a, an issue. But it works both ways, as we know. That hurt uh, Republicans in 2018 with 
Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And one other thing that seems to be a consistent undertone throughout this entire process is the division with age. It seems that for most voters under the age of 40, there is overwhelmingly a stronger amount of support for Sanders, and those older tend to be more supportive of Joe Biden or some of the other candidates that recently had dropped out. Is this rare in an election to see that kind of split? Because it seems like in 2016, at least, it was more education, it was rurality versus suburbia. This age split seems kind of new. Well, I think it, it's cyclical. I think if you went back in previous elections, uh, 1968, when the, 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 you know, the Vietnam War was raging, there was a real generational divide in the country, uh, and certainly in the Democratic Party, there were riots outside the convention in Chicago. So yes, I, I think that's happening, that, that uh, Bernie Sanders is speaking to the future uh, of these people, and there's concern for everybody, or everybody seems to be concerned or should be, but particularly for the millennials and the younger people, and he, he, he really resonates with them, where some of the other candidates don't so much, because the real focus there with others, particularly Biden, is beating Trump. That's obviously the overarching goal. But there's a broader message, I think, coming from Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And in, I guess, the past four years of just how things have changed when it comes to communication, social media, the Trump strategy as well, what has been the most substantive change, in your opinion, to the way we go through this process? Because you know, with technology and everything, the world that we live in now is nothing like it was two or three presidential elections ago. Oh, and even even four years ago, I think the, the most physical manifestation of it is I and people I've talked to and people I've seen on Twitter and whatnot are just talking about the dearth of election mail they've gotten from presidential candidates. Really, the only one I've gotten anything from is Mike Bloomberg, who, of course, has the Cadillac of campaigns. But it, I think... The, there are strategists that are just thinking that's not the way to go if you have at all limited resources, that there are better ways to get the message out to more people through social media and other means in, in this day and age. So that's really one aspect of it. But it's been going on for a while. The other aspect is just the, the real hyper-targeting that they can do, that you can do on social media through friends and those kinds of links. Mail you got sophisticated in that regard. It used to be just blanketing a community. Then it was party registration and then really drilling down into frequent voters uh, and age groups and, and income status as well. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think we need to remind ourselves more often is that we're used to seeing online communities, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whichever one you like. But you have to realize that everyone's experience is tailored to themselves. So your political reality and your Twitter sphere is nothing like someone else's. And that can be easy to forget. Correct. And that's part of the problem, I think, in the larger sense with the country. People are, are you know, getting more and more into their echo chambers and not hearing the views in a cross-pollination way that, that uh, used to happen. For all the, uh, the disparaging of the mainstream media from both the left and the right, at least you had those voices that, that you really sort of couldn't avoid, and now you can. And a lot of people think that has to, a lot to do with the polarization and, uh, and some of the kind of downward trend in discourse. Yeah, and it makes sense because, you know, these platforms were built on a conversation, and in many times conversations that are negative have more engagement than those that are positive. So it's kind of like a Pandora's box that's created this cycle that we really can't break away from. Well, true. But, you know, I mean, negative campaigning has been happening since the founding of the country pretty uh, yeah. much. And, uh, 
you know, we keep thinking, and people say they don't like it, but it works, and so uh, we should sort of stop complaining about it. Uh, one of these days, if, if certain campaigns are just so over the top, their candidates lose, that might send a message. But, you know, we, we've seen that uh, they, these are smart people running these campaigns. They wouldn't be doing it if they didn't think it really worked. Mm-hmm. And at what point have you seen local races kind of shift under this, you know, a little more spicy, perhaps, political environment? Are you seeing this kind of trickle down to more local races as well? Well, just in, in the very you know, data-driven and targeting, uh, you know, I mean, local elections have been, have had their negative uh, approaches for a very long time, and they do to this day. Uh, but I think that's, people are trying to, because the data is there, they're trying to drill down more and, and use their, their money more wisely than they were able to before, because they just didn't have the kind of information. So, yeah, it's gotten very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also worth noting that we're recording this. Right now, it is 426 on Tuesday. Only two states have been called so far. So tomorrow will be the episode in which we kind of dive deeper into everything that happened. But with an evening podcast, there's only so much you could do. True. And one thing is if people are listening to this before the polls close or even into the night, keep in mind that it's not a problem with California. It's just the way the system is. The count is long because they allow people of wide you know, breadth of, of being able to vote vote by mail, drop off your mail ballots. It takes time. Some cases, well, we remember there were campaigns that took days, if not weeks, to, to decide. And so there might not be a sense of, de- you know, something determined by the end of the day. One just thing to, to look out for, as we talked earlier before we uh, started recording this, is that it'll be interesting to see how Biden does, because as we recall, he was really tanking in the latest polls before the South Carolina primary. Uh, that has given him a boost in other states and probably here. Why I'm saying this is it'll be interesting to see if the first votes counted are the early absentees. And if he doesn't seem to be doing too well there, it'll be interesting to see if once they start counting the election day vote, whether he starts uh, rising uh, as the night goes on. Yeah, when you look at the map of all the states, it's kind of interesting to see where the advantages are. But Sanders does have an advantage because he has large support with Latino populations, and you have California and Texas voting at the same time. Well, that's true. And and it looks like that uh, Biden is looking like he's doing pretty well in the southern states. He's done very well, as we know, among black voters. South Carolina underscored that. But yeah, the, the, the real message, more so than the big win, I think, by Bernie Sanders in New Mexico— uh, I'm sorry, Nevada, was the um, uh, the Latino vote. Uh, they had been working hard for it, and it really came through for him, and uh, we'll see if that happens here. Yep. And, of course, uh, if you want to know the alerts, follow us on social media, download the Union Tribune app, and get the push notifications as they happen throughout the night. Just uh, hurry up and wait. All right. Michael Smolens, thank you so much. Thanks. In other news... San Diego County has started to ask schools to submit plans for a possible coronavirus outbreak. The preparation includes regularly sanitizing services and monitoring student and staff absences. The county education office and county health officials are relying on coronavirus guidelines for schools published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. They include instructing students and staff to wash hands frequently, sneeze into sleeves, alert health officials to any spikes in absences due to respiratory illnesses, routinely cleaning services, and sending students and staff home when sick. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekday evenings. 
On weekday mornings, you can also hear a quick rundown of local weather and headlines. Just tell your smart speaker to launch the San Diego Union Tribune. You can also get the Flash Briefing as a podcast. For a full listing of our audio offerings, go to uniontrib.com slash podcasts. Until next time.